Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Would he really say no? Would the manager of the Skateland Roller Rink really tell a busload of teenagers they couldn't skate there because they were black teenagers, not white teenagers? The Urban League's youth group was about to find out. The teens had been warned to expect rejection. Everyone knew that Skateland didn't allow black people to skate. But the rink wouldn't be so blatant as to turn away an entire busload, would it? Young Nadine Williams was about to find out. She grabbed her skates and stepped off the bus. She and the other teens walked to the rink's door. If they couldn't skate, at least they would make a statement. Welcome to Tales from the Rep Morgue, the podcast that explores the Canton Repository's 200-year-old archive. I'm your host, Shane Hoover. The fight to integrate Canton's Skateland roller rink is a footnote in the civil rights era of the 1950s and 1960s. But it was a personal turning point in the life of at least one of the young people involved. I first read about the incident last year in the book African Americans of Canton, Ohio, Treasures of Black History. And I was researching the story when protests for social justice erupted this summer over the deaths of George Floyd and other African Americans at the hands of police. The marches and demonstrations are the latest chapters in the decades-long struggle African Americans have fought for civil rights and dignity. The right to vote, like anyone else. The right to ride a bus, like anyone else. The right to have a job, get a home, and go to school, like everyone else. Even the right to roller skate. Part 1. The Skating Life Nadine McElwain Massey built a career as a noted educator in Canton. The city school board even named a building after her. But 60 years ago, she was Nadine Williams, a black teenager for whom roller skating was life. If my grandmother asked me to do anything... I would say yes, and can I go skating? You know, that was my um, one thing that I wanted to do, and, and everybody went. That was what you asked for for Christmas, your own skates. Usually Nadine and her friends skated at the Pathfinder in Southeast Canton, a rink that was owned by African Americans. Occasionally, she and her friends skated at a rink in Alliance, but only when they could get a ride halfway across the county. 
No matter where they skated, they had skill and style. Skating and dancing is kind of what we did. You know, we'd dance and skate. But there was one rink in Canton where Nadine and her friends couldn't go. Skateland. The Skateland roller rink was in an old building at the Stark County Fairgrounds. During the fair, the building was used for car shows. For the rest of the year, Skateland was a roller rink. In 1961, 25,000 people paid 10 cents a year for a membership that allowed them to skate. But only if they were white. Although the rink was on public land, Skateland was privately run. And the manager, a Tennessee native named Ed B. McKee, didn't allow African Americans to join the club. For Nadine and her friends, Skateland was one of the places in Canton where they knew they weren't welcome. Compared to the Jim Crow South, segregation in Canton was subtle, but it was there. Mortgage lending rules and real estate practices confined black families to Canton's older, less prosperous neighborhoods. Schools were integrated, but black and white students didn't always have the same opportunities. And some businesses didn't fully welcome black customers. They would take our money, they liked taking our money, but they would not let us have the right. And that's what I didn't approve of. They, t- you c- they can take your money all day long, but they didn't want to be, you know, want us around to do, you know, things like the jobs and opportunities. That's Camila Farrakhan. She grew up with Nadine. Farrakhan was born and raised in Canton. Back then, her name was Bernice Bell. But she spent summers with her family in Mississippi. And the South was a different, more dangerous world. I just remember I couldn't drink out the water fountain because I was black. I remember that if you didn't get out there, if you said something wrong to somebody, you better be on the, on, in the car going home before the sun breaks because they would come and kill you. There was a lot of lynches um, that went on in the, in the South. Canton wasn't Mississippi, but it wasn't good. I remember at the Grants 5 and 10, you can hardly sit at the um, lunch counter. We had to stand up and get a hot dog. So, you know, that was in the early 60s, late 50s. Um, but they were very prejudiced toward us. You can go in there and buy stuff all day long, but they didn't want you to eat at their counters. Clothing stores also discriminated. They'd sell to black customers, but wouldn't let them try on the clothes especially hats. This is Nadine McElwain Massey. You know, everybody knew where it was okay to go and where it was not okay to go. So basically, the Skateland was one of the not okay places to go. But that was going to change. Part two, when we come back. Part two, the Urban League. If skating was one pillar of Nadine's teenage life, the Urban League was another. The League's office on Liberty Avenue Southeast was a hub of African-American life in Canton, especially for young people. The Urban League organized fishing parties and trips to see the Indians play in Cleveland. It had a gym, 
and it held dances. Anybody my age would talk to you about the street dances. They were wonderful. In the summer when it was hot, we would go to the Urban League, and in front of the, the street in the Urban League, there was um, a DJ or something, or band maybe, and we would just party and party and party until um, early in the morning. And that was just so much fun. The dances were one of the few places Camila Farrakhan's strict mother allowed her and her sisters to go. It was a lot of fun. Um, Guy Mack used to make sure we got home, because Guy Mack used to pull something. He said, let's hit it. If you don't make it when he say you do, he'll take you home to your mom. But the Urban League wasn't just about fun. It also was about education. It was a place where young people like Nadine could learn about black history and their rights as American citizens. That was a, a learning experience on, on how to live in America, pretty much. The man who taught them was Arthur Beeler. Beeler had moved his wife Mary and their six children from Louisville, Kentucky, to Canton in 1957 to work at the Urban League. Two more daughters were born during the Beeler's time in Ohio. Glenn Beeler would have been about seven years old when his family moved to Canton. He says his father was a man of many talents. Arthur Beeler played saxophone. He was a skilled carpenter. He rubbed shoulders with leaders of the civil rights movement. Shirley Chisholm, Julian Bond, Whitney M. Young. But he wasn't one to boast, Glenn Beeler explains. For example, my, my brother and I played football, and he never said once that he was a varsity letterman in three sports and played collegiate football. You would think he would have pushed us harder, but he did. He let us develop at our own pace and supported us. Arthur Beeler also had the respect of his children and the young people he mentored as a coach and advisor. Again, Glenn Beeler. He was, we knew he was there, put it like that. We knew he was there. You could just feel, feel him being in the room. I mean, he had, that much, uh, he had that much charisma. And Arthur Beeler was firm in what he believed was right. During his time with the Urban League in Canton, Beeler worked on issues of housing, job discrimination, and urban renewal. This is his widow, Mary Beeler. During that time, uh, there wasn't too much of sit-ins or marches. He, he saw problems at meetings with different dignitaries, making them aware of the problems that exist in Canton, and then demand change. And that was his goal. It was a strategy he would use to take on Skateland, the segregated roller rink, and the kids from the Urban League would help him do it. Part three, when we come back. Part three, going to court. Before Nadine and the other teens loaded onto a bus bound for Skateland, Arthur Beeler made sure they were prepared. They told us not to say anything back, you know, not to have a smart mouth back to the people if they said anything to us. And they said whatever they said to report it to them, 
but not to take any kind of physical action against anybody. And, of course, not to let them take physical action against us, but we weren't to do anything you know, in retaliation. We were just to listen. If they didn't let us in, we were to turn around, go back, get on the bus. And then they said, we talk about it later, which we did. According to news stories, the Urban League actually made two attempts to skate. The first time, Skateland management said skaters needed a club membership and claimed the person who took applications was out. The second time, the club claimed it was out of applications, but would mail them. It never did. Nadine's group only got as far as the door before they had to turn around. So we all just kind of got back on the bus after they told us, no, we weren't getting there. And we were depressed. You know, that was pretty bad for somebody to tell you, no, you can't skate. And it was all because of the color of your skin. Our advisor, Art Beeler, told us, don't be sad because we had just won the first step. And I guess that first step, by that he meant uh, we had got them to, to overtly say, no, you can't come in. And that meant we could go to court because we had, you know, the evidence for it. For two years, Arthur Beeler worked to integrate the club. Terry Beeler says her father was patient and persistent. It's like a chess game. You wait and see what your opponent's next move is going to be, and then you go forward. And that's what he did. You know, stand up for what he believed in. Taxes would be the key to Arthur Beeler's strategy. The Skateland rink at the fairgrounds was public property, supported by tax dollars. White people paid taxes, black people paid taxes, and they all should be able to skate, Beeler argued. Stark County Prosecutor Norman Putman agreed. In fact, the prosecutor said the club was violating state law by not allowing black people to skate at the rink. The prosecutor sued Ed McKee, Skateland's operator, seeking to evict him from the county-owned building. The case went to court in September 1961. Skateland was temporarily shut down for the fair, and McKee claimed that was why the club hadn't processed recent membership applications by black skaters. But the prosecutor said he had the names of up to 100 black people who had tried and failed to get Skateland memberships. The court battle lasted into April of 1962, when Stark County Common Pleas Judge George Graham ordered Skateland to close if it wouldn't allow skaters of all races and colors to use the rink at the same time. If McKee was allowed to keep doing what he was doing, the judge said, he could essentially sit on club applications until the individuals were too old to skate, depriving them of their rights. When Mr. Beeler told us that uh, we won our case, and we were exuberant, you know, jubilee, um, so we all were saying, we won, we won. It was like we actually did part of the civil rights movement here in this country because we went to court and we won. Nadine and her friends returned to Skateland to exercise their hard-won right to skate. He said, all right, so we're getting the bus and we're going to go back out to the skate rink and see what's going to happen. But as we started going around the skating rink, they were just blowing whistles at everything. If we started to dance and skate, they'd blow whistles. 
If we skate it backwards, they blow whistles. If they if we skate it more than a pair, you know, one like two girls or a girl and a guy. If we had three people, they blow the whistle. Everything we did, they would blow the whistle. And so um, Art Beer had told us, you know, don't react to it. Just go ahead and keep right on skating and, you know, and having a good time, which we weren't having a good time because they had too many restrictions on us. So um, at the end of that skate, we all got back on the bus. And we, we that's when we, you know, kind of let it all out. We said, they did this and they did that and they did that. And he'd say, don't worry about it, um, people. He said, you got your skate. He said, you can come out here anytime you want. Well, the next time we went out there, it said closed. McKee had shut down, saying he didn't want to operate illegally. In November 1962, Skateland reopened under new management. Bring the entire family, advertisements said. Presumably that meant all families of any race. The skating rink stayed open under different operators until 1982. McKee died in 1993 at the age of 65. His obituary mentioned that he used to run Skateland. Arthur Beeler left Canton at the end of the 1960s for an Urban League post in Warren, before ultimately returning to Louisville, Kentucky. He died in 2001 at the age of 83. Nadine Williams graduated from McKinley in 1962 and went on to become a noted educator in Canton, Alliance, and Dayton. She retired in 1999 and later served on the Canton School Board. She and the other youth group members hadn't risked their lives to register voters. They hadn't confronted white mobs to integrate schools or marched in the face of fire hoses and police dogs. But fighting to integrate Skateland was a turning point in her life. Again, Nadine McElwain Massey. It was the incident in my life that gave me an awful lot of dignity. You know, as an African-American person, a black person, you don't live your whole life with people, and I'm talking about all people, but particularly white people, giving you the dignity that, you know, you believe you deserve, just like everybody else. And that was a situation that I felt gave us dignity, and I, it just made me proud, and I stuck with it. She sees a stronger strain of activism in the younger generation today. Whether it's students from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School demanding gun control, or her own 16-year-old grandson speaking out against police brutality. I'm even more proud of them than I was of us for going to, um, you know, to the skate land. And the reason why is because the young people aren't waiting to be led. We were led by adults, but these young people are not. They know that there's um, justice and that they believe that they, like everybody else, should be able to achieve justice. And they're, they're fighting for it. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Rep Morgue. Our theme music is Blind by Maidan. You can check out the show notes and listen to other podcasts at cantonrep.com. Just going to run this 
dogs to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.